Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. If you love the games, we are the show for you. Each week we share stories from athletes and people behind the scenes to help you have more fun watching the games. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you? I'm a little disappointed, but not surprised. How so? You've kept me away from people with weapons again. Me, <laughs> and I think it's probably a good choice. <laughs> a little foreshadowing to today's interview, which we will get to in a moment. First, we wanted to mention thinking about the people of Beijing right now because they have had the heaviest rainfall in 140 years post Typhoon Doksuri, and a lot of flooding going on within the city. The Yongding River has flooded over, which is very close to the big air venue. Hopefully everyone is doing all right and it will dry out soon. Well, today's interview, we are excited to have wheelchair fencer Ellen Geddes on the show. Ellen competed at her first Paralympics in Tokyo in two weapons. She got seventh in Team Epe, eighth in Team Foil, tenth in Individual Foil, and eleventh in Individual Epe. Contributor Ben, back on the show. Yay! He talked with Ellen to learn how the sport of wheelchair fencing works. Take a listen. Ellen, you're a fencer, you're a wheelchair fencer. Can you talk yeah. about what that is and what the sport entails and what weapons you fence? So wheelchair fencing is a seated sport and it is very similar to able-bodied fencing other than the fact that there is no footwork involved. And there's no moving up and down the strip in the wheelchairs either. Um, the wheelchairs are set at a fixed distance. So the dynamics of the sport are almost faster and more intense than a lot of able-bodied fencing because there's no exiting from distance. You're always within distance to be able to hit your opponent or have your opponent hit you. So there's a lot more blade work and there's a lot more fast hand action. There are three different weapons that are competed in, epee, foil, and saber. I compete in epee and foil. And, and they are different in that they have different target areas and rules, but it's still all basically you hit another person with a sword. <laughs> so <laughs> let's talk about that just for a second, the difference between the three. Epee and foil are kind of similar, right, in, in one aspect. So epee and foil are both point weapons. You have to hit your opponent with the tip of the blade for you to score a touch. Saber, if you touch your opponent with any part of the blade, you get a touch. And then epee and foil are different, where in epee, as long as you hit your opponent, you get the touch. If you both hit each other at the same time, you both get the touch. Um, foil is a right-of-way weapon, so you have to have control of the action in order to receive credit for um, hitting your opponent. And that involves either starting your attack first or hitting the opponent's blade before you hit them. And then Saber is like foil in that way. It is also a right-of-way weapon. 
So I want to come back to what you talked about before with the closeness of this sport. But first, I think right. I want to ask, how did you get into this? Like, what what made you say, I really want to hit somebody with a sword? So I um, was at the Shepherd Center in Atlanta for my spinal cord injury rehab. I broke my back in 2011 and then did, you know, spinal cord injury rehab for nearly eight months at the Shepherd Center in Atlanta. And one Saturday, I was down in the gym. Actually, my, my mom had gotten me to go down to the gym to do some extra working out. And it never would have occurred to me to do that on my own. And I ran into the Shepherd fencing team practicing. And it looked like fun. And the team captain at the time, Dennis, asked me if I thought it would be fun to stab people. And I said, yes. And so here we are. So it wasn't out of deep-seated anger then. It was more of... <laughs> the idea you no. wanted, you thought it would be a good time. <laughs> yeah, no, it seemed it seemed entertaining. It's a fun sport. I experience no. I don't. I don't. I'm very competitive, but I don't get any like. People talk about it as being like a uh, release for their pent up frustrations, and that just that's not the energy I bring to it. Sure. So when you're in the chairs to fence. You you talked about how the standard fencing strip is something like 14 meters. How close right. are you to each other as you're fencing? So you measure the distance. So it's different for every opponent. So it's based on your height. So you measure the distance. So you're basically, they can touch either the tip of your elbow with your arm kind of turned at a right angle to your body with for an epee. And then for both saber and foil, it's to the inside of your elbow. So it's about three inches shorter for either saber or foil and is that the it's the length of the weapon plus like the length of your bicep so it's the bicep length that varies right but would that have to be for the smaller fencer though because yeah, so you measure for the smaller five. fencer so i am okay. 510 was five whatever i'm still 510 long even if i don't stand up anymore right. um so i frequently they measure their distance to like the inside of the elbow and I'm frequently like nearly touching their body. Oh, okay. Okay. So from a strategy perspective, is that an advantage or disadvantage? Cause I feel like you've got somebody who's kind of inside of your reach the whole time, but they are, they're kind of inside, right? Like in other words, they could kind of get their point, your point past them. And, but they're yeah, so in. Shooting past people is a huge problem, right? Like if you've gotten past target, you have to go a long ways to get back to them, right? And so making sure that I don't overreach on, especially on people that are shorter than me is a uh, big aspect of my training. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So had you ever seen fencing before this though? Have you ever watched the Olympics or seen it anyplace else? Or was it really just at the Shepherd Center? Yeah, fencing really wasn't in my purview. I certainly knew it did exist. I had some friends who did pentathlon, so I had a vague idea that fencing was a thing, right? Okay. Not that like one touch epee is particularly a good representation of fencing, but you know, I at least knew it existed as a sport and kind of understood the like gear and all of that. But no, I'd never really interacted with fencing until I started doing it. Okay. And so you start fencing how soon was it before you started to think, 
gee, maybe I should be doing this internationally. Maybe I should be thinking about the Paralympics, that kind of thing. So in the United States, there aren't very many para fencers. And so as soon as I started fencing, because I am a woman and because I have a spinal cord injury, so the category I fit into for the Paralympics is a very small subset of people. And there were no women who were in my category in the United States currently competing at all. Okay. And so as soon as I basically held a fencing weapon, I was encouraged to go and compete internationally and to like think about the Paralympics. I do ultimately think that like that was, it made my road more difficult. I competed internationally for the first time, probably within my first year of fencing. It very much felt like being thrown to the wolves. I have certainly made very good positive forward progress in my fencing, but it's been very interesting. Like pre-Tokyo, before I went to my first games, everybody was like, oh, you know, your fencing has made such progress. Like, what do you think like the big changes? And I was like, well, I broke my back a year and a half before the first time I went to an international fencing competition, I've learned how to exist in the chair now. Like I know how my body works in a wheelchair. And so that's made a huge difference in my fencing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So talk about that. What does that mean when you say, you know, how your body works now in the chair? Like, so it's what like is, swimming, what you... right? When you first learn how to swim. Well, so it's, I mean, it's like swimming. So when you first learn how to swim, you're basically learning how to not drown. You're not learning how to be fast. Right. Right. So there's a lot of picking up the skill sets to exist. So like knowing where my body is in the chair, like knowing where my various balance points are, like knowing how far I can reach before I'm going to lose my balance, being confident in where I can put myself in space, just like in the chair has made me better at like moving my body back and forth in the chair for fencing. Okay. And you talked about, so... In various para sports, there are sort of different classifications. Is that the same with fencing? Yes. So in fencing internationally, there are three different classifications, A, B, and C. A is generally amputees or people with like a little bit of cerebral palsy or like mild spina bifida. Generally speaking, it's people who walk. B is generally speaking, people with spinal cord injuries, the main the main factor that everybody has is a lack of core muscles. Okay. Um, and then C is someone who also has impairment to their upper limbs. So, you know, you get some like C-spine injuries that result in a lack of finger function or a lack of tricep function. Okay. Okay. And if there's a small group of people who are fencing this in the United States, I mean, the fencing community in the United States, in my impression is smaller than it is around the world anyway and now you're talking about a smaller subset how hard is it to find people to train with how hard is it to practice yeah so finding different people to practice with is extremely difficult i do a lot of my practicing against able-bodied fencers who just come and sit down in the chair with me and i do a lot of like just training with my coach who watches me compete and comes to all of my competitions and does a lot of like video replay watching my opponent and then kind of trying to emulate like what he sees as the uh prevailing set of tactics and so we work kind of on all of that okay and when you're so when you're fencing able-bodied fencers mm -hmm. i'm guessing that they think 
and fence differently than the people that you probably face in the wheelchair settings just because they're not used to it. Yes. So I don't, I fence able-bodied fencers, you know, on a fairly frequent basis, but it's not the majority of the training I do. Like the majority of the training I do is like with my coach, like working on like specific tactics because B fencers do move in the chair so differently than like able-bodied people do just because of the lack of core muscle. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do have a few friends from different countries that I try to very purposefully like get in the chair with before the competition starts anytime we're out just as like a little bit of a refresher and practice you know before we get going so I've made some good friends from other countries that are happy to have the extra warm-up time and so you posted I think today about an international camp so some folks have come in is that right Yeah, so I am in Vancouver, Washington right now, and I've been friends for quite a while with one of the referees from Canada, Suzanne, and I was able to see her and she helped with the camp and helped with some like right of way type questions. And then an athlete from Italy was in the area. He was actually getting set up to go to like commercial pilot school or I'm not sure. And so he came and he fenced Matteo. So that was exciting and like a very good opportunity to get to fence, you know, some other people. So I was very glad to be able to be, you know, up here at Orion with myself and like one of my other USA teammates. And we got to fence Mateo for a day. And so it was a good, a good bonus. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to ask about this because you mentioned this before, and it's something that I was thinking about as I was preparing for this interview, which is that idea of, an able-bodied fencer, which I fence, I can always run away. <laughs> you know, I can kind of yeah. uh, retreat and move on the strip. And I feel like it requires a different kind of mindset when you are at that fixed distance. How intense does it feel to be like right there across from somebody? You certainly don't have any like options to take a step, step back and reset and start over. I never fenced on my feet. So like, I don't know any different, but I've certainly noticed, especially like if I get someone who's uh, an epi fencer to sit down with me, they're used to kind of being able to like take a breath, take some space, take some time. And that's just like not really an option. So how intensely then are you cross training just for that kind of, it feels like it would be a huge energy expenditure that you are right there and you are kind of, fighting it out each point honestly it feels more like mental energy than physical energy to me like the bouts don't really take that long it is rare for me to feel particularly tired in a bout like I have some various injuries like in my elbow or my wrist that are problematic and so like my joints start to feel a little iffy sometimes like the tendons that have had problems feel problematic but like overall, like body tired and overall fatigue, like within a bout, just like really isn't a thing. Mental fatigue on like staying on and like not getting distracted, you know, losing focus and then losing touches is a bigger factor for me. So then you so I've done a... kind of a lot of sports psych work. So like, I wanted to uh, ask sports about psychology. That. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so what does that work entail? Like, what are you, is it, what is that like? 
is it visualization is it is it sort of like talk therapy what is how does it work when you're doing that kind of work with the sports psychologist I mean sports psych is you know there is an aspect of talk therapy involved I have a lot of I had a lot of issues with anxiety and so that was like my main main point of focus was like getting anxious and then not being able to like find like focused and center to be able to go do the job right and so there's a lot of visualization there's visualization of like doing things correctly and then there's also a visualization of like oh well these are all the catastrophic things that could happen and see how they're not so bad (laughs) (laughs) i i don't know i think that would scare me even more but i i sort of get it well yeah no i've had i've had some great conversations with the various people who you know you don't have to like force the bad thoughts out of the way though right like that was a little bit of my problem like oh i can't possibly think about that like that's bad but you can let the bad thoughts like pass through you and move past them and move move through that's that seems like a better way to do it it's a lot harder to stop yourself right from thinking of something and you are now the last i read so this may have changed since i saw it but you are do I have this right that you are third in the world in both foil and epee? Yes, that's after the last competition, so nothing's changed yet. Okay, so you're training at a very high level. You're doing two weapons at once. What is a typical training day like for you then? So I try very hard to not do both weapons in the same day. Sometimes I am having an epee day and some foil fencers want to like sit down and practice some foil with me. And I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll get dressed. No worries. But generally speaking, like, I don't do both weapons in the same day. But usually, if I am with another, like, one of my uh, national teammates, or if I'm with, like, an able-bodied fencer, sit down and do some drills first thing in the morning for a couple hours, get a lesson, take a break, and then afternoon, do another lesson and do some bouting. Okay. Through to the evening. And are you doing cross-training as well? Um, so I do a lot of work with like resistance bands on trying to like work basically the small muscles in like my sh- shoulder, get all of my rotator cuff, get, you know, all of the like supporting muscles, like through my scapula, like what I have left because I'm missing most of my back muscles. So like that's the majority of my like focused training work. I also do some like core stuff for the bit of abs that I have left and then not a ton of cardio, but a little bit of cardio. Okay. And then I want to talk about the strategy of these bouts and that when you're looking at your opponents, what do you think about when you say, okay, this is what I'm up against next? Or do you not think about it? And do you just say, you know, my strategy is try and hit them in the right time? Yeah. No. So next to go, oh, well, this person like specific fences this way, like as I'm about to go fence them, that's something that like I will have known historically from like watching bouts and having fenced them before but I'm not actively thinking about it as I'm getting on strip like as I'm getting on strip I'm just focused on staying like relaxed and staying in the moment and fencing my game because a little bit like I find it easy to get bought into someone else's like strategy and that's never a good way to be successful right so you want to like be committed to like your concept and the things that like you know that you can be successful at so Mm -hmm. I try to remember 
even if it's not like against them, even if it's against like somebody else that I've fenced recently, oh, these were the things I was successful at. These were the touches I did that like worked really well for me. Remember, you can do this. That's what I'm thinking about before I go fence. And that idea, you said you've seen a lot of your opponents before. Have you ever seen opponents and then you find that they've come up with a whole new way of their approach to about? Like, do people kind of learn new skills or change the way they fence? A couple of times I've sat down across from people and they've swapped from fencing with a pistol grip to a French grip. And it's been an entirely new experience for me. <laughs> um, but overall people generally stay the same at least some version of the same they get better but their essence core whatever is the same yeah yeah and i want to talk about so you were in tokyo in 2021 i guess yeah what was that like competing in i mean that was the covid olympics right how did that go what was it like getting there what was it like kind of in the competitions so it was my first games so to me it was normal right we flew over on essentially empty airplanes there were probably 14 people on the plane i went to tokyo on i had a whole row to myself one sleep it was great we were not allowed to go watch other competitions which i found a little bit frustrating like i couldn't go like watch goalball or watch real chair rugby right which i would have enjoyed being able to do we still got to participate in opening ceremonies we just had to covid test every single day which i mean annoying but fine right and then the competition itself other than like having to wear masks and then i guess not having spectators so like getting to go to paris and having to experience like the spectator aspect of a paralympics is going to be vastly different for me right it just kind of felt like a World Cup. Just, I mean, we don't we don't really have spectators at our uh, wheelchair World Cups either, right? It's not a hugely popular sport, generally speaking. But yeah, no, it just like kind of felt like another competition. So, I knew everybody there. Uh-huh. <laughs> so then what does the road to Paris look like for you from here? So we have four more World Cups, a World Championship, and a Zonal. And then qualification will be over. I am hoping to like knock down a couple more medals this cycle before we go to Paris and just keeping on track and like not, not losing focus. Okay. And I mean, you're confident that you will be in Paris. There's not a concern about qualification or anything else at this point. I mean, you could always screw something up. I did like very much break my right femur in April before I was supposed to go to Tokyo when I was like very much already qualified to go to Tokyo and there was a chance I wouldn't get to go to Tokyo because I broke my leg. So there is always a chance that like I don't get to go. So it didn't happen till it happens, but it's certainly looking highly likely at this point in time. I mean, I, and I'm not trying to cast any kind of doubt, but it's just more of that. No, 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 it's fine. Like what the... But I, the process, they take your best zonal results. I've already done one zonal within the quad. There is another zonal available. I did win two gold medals at the previous zonal. I will probably go to the other one as well because, you know, I like winning. <laughs> and I like I can't do better. I can't get better points, but I can you know, potentially block someone else from also getting gold medal points, right? Which, you know, there is 
there are girls in our zone that are not like drastically far behind me. So there is always like a chance that someone passes me, you know, and stuff happens, but it should, it should all be fine. So come back then, because that makes me think about what you said earlier about mindset and about mm-hmm. how your mindset is. I'm not taking out my frustrations. I'm just here to compete. Right. Can you expand on that a little bit about how you sort of see the sport and the competition and how you view the opponents and what you think without giving anything away, right? I don't want you to give away your... I mean, <laughs> to me, it's all just, it's all kind of a game. Like we're playing a game, right? Yeah. So foil makes a lot of sense to me because it's a game with like very specific rules. And I, I like the rules and I like the fact that like, when I touch your blade, that means something. And so the rules of foil make a bit more sense to me than like the rules of FA. I, FA makes me more nervous than foil does having to just defend myself with my point instead of getting the option to like defend myself with a parry defend is kind of the wrong word but you know successfully achieve points by parrying before you hit them right. but yeah no i like it's a game it's you know i it's this combat sport and everybody like takes it very seriously as a combat sport right and i've heard people talk about how one or the other of the weapons like doesn't make sense to them because like why would you let yourself get hit I'm like because it's a game i don't understand the question <laughs> yeah that makes sense right so you're getting ready for Paris. How does the training change between now and then? Or does it? I mean, are there things that you kind do you kind of like athletes talk about cycles or periodization or that kind of thing? Are you doing that kind of thing where it's like it gets real intense before the zonals and then you take some time off? Or is it there's always kind of a steady level of trying to maintain skill and that kind of preparation? So I feel like I personally get rusty really fast. So I like always having a bit of training on the plate. Like I I feel like I get rust really quickly, Um, which isn't the case for everyone. I think that's just like me personally. Right. And so I don't think that like my training program is like correct for everyone. But for me, I feel like I get rusty pretty fast. So I think doing something every day is kind of like the best way for me to keep moving forward. Right, right. So do you have any advice for other fencers about how to get better? And I may just be Um, asking for me, but do you have any advice for other fencers about how to get better? You just have to keep doing it and don't be afraid to lose. Like you're going to lose a lot before you start not losing and you just have to keep going at it and you have to like be willing to like back up and get back up and get back up and keep doing it. So is there anything else that you think the listeners should know about the sport and and anything you think, why should they be watching it when it comes to watching Paris 2024? I certainly think that wheelchair fencing is a lot of fun to watch, even if it seems like the rules are kind of complicated. It is certainly an entertaining sport. You can see whose lights light up if you're watching Epe and figure it out from there. The referees do explain what happens in both foil and saber. It's fast. It's dynamic. It's a lot of fun. Even if you don't know the rules, you can still watch. Thank you so much, Ellen. You can follow Ellen on Instagram at Ellen underscore wheelchair fencing. And we will have a link to that in the show notes. And I hope for Paris, people in the United States will actually get to see wheelchair fencing. I know. Alexis Schaefer talked about that with us about how not every sport got 
onto the OBS feeds and why some sports like wheelchair fencing didn't get on. But, you know, who will be there to report even if you can't see it? We will. That's right. Well, we will make sure that coverage happens if not all sports get covered for Paris. I'm excited about getting to go to the Paralympics. I know because there's so much we haven't gotten to see yet. And how pathetic am I going to be at wheelchair rugby? Well, I'm worried about being able to take you out of the venue. (laughs) I may just go to wheelchair rugby every day. Well, the good news with wheelchair rugby is that there is a game pretty much every day. So I go see something else and then I go to my wheelchair rugby game. Well, we would like to give a special thank you to our patrons who keep our flame alive every month. Hey, a special deleted scene episode dropped this week and more new patron only content is coming soon. If you would like to get in on that, check out flamealivepod.com slash support for more info. If supporting now is not an option, but you still want to give us some love, please tell a friend about the show and let us find more of our people. Now is the time of the show where we check out our history moment. All year long, we are talking about Seoul 1988, as it is the 35th anniversary of those games. We have a story from our summer intern, Annalie Dable. Annalie, what do you got for us? So today we're talking about the Byungjin Elk controversy. The South Koreans were hyped about the boxing tournament and seeing Korean athletes representing their country made them have a sense of pride in being Korean. But these feelings of pride would be turned into shame after an incident in the match between Byungjin Ella and Alexander Herstoff that would be forever etched into boxing history. Also, just a quick side note, if I mention these names wrong, don't, I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you would just be, you know, par for the course. (laughs) You should hear me when we get to the Eastern European names. It's embarrassing. (laughs) Anyway, the South the, on September 22nd, 1988, and this was bef- this happened before the Roy Jones Jr. controversy, South Korean boxer Byungjun Il went up against Bulgarian boxer Alexander Herstoff in the second round of the bantamweight competition. And during the first two rounds, Byungjun Il was warned not once, but twice by the New Zealand referee Keith Walker for headbutting. Did he listen? Of course he didn't, because why would he? <laughs> After the Byungjun... <laughs> After Byungjin Il did a third and fourth illegal headbutt, this cost him two points, which ultimately cost him the match. And this loss was a heavy blow to the Korean officials and spectators because Byungjin Il was a South Korean favorite. He went against John Mark Augustin in a 5-0 bantamweight bout in the first round of the competition. This was 5.0, people. It was 5-0. This, I mean, can you imagine it? He gave the Korean people hope that the country would be able to sweep the whole competition entirely. Now they're here lost a match because of, quote-unquote, two measly points. Wouldn't you be devastated if a boxer was important to your country lose? This was not the first time in the boxing tournament that referee Keith Walker was part of the controversy involving South Korea. Early on, he was accused by Irish officials for not giving penalties to South Korean welterweight Song kyung Sup for headbutting in a boxing match. And that's not all. Korean team trainers got upset at Walker in the light flyweight competition for counting U.S. boxer Michael Carbajal as the winner over South Korean Oh Kwang-soo. 
And then Walker's reputation in the ring just spiraled from there. So as you can see, everyone, we're off to a wonderful start. But if you think this was bad, think again. This was just the beginning. Anyway, after the Byung Hero stuff match, Byung's coach Lee Hung Soo was so furious after hearing of the two points being deducted that he ran into the boxing ring and hit Walker in the back. Lee Hung Soo hit to the ref caused many other South Koreans to join the coach in the ring and go after Walker. Walker said he had liquid phone in, thrown in his face, was punched and kicked, and his hair was yanked by the South Korean officials. Walker almost lost an ear in the scuffle. The attacks on Walker were so bad that other referees had to step in and try and go defend Walker. <laughs> I mean, boxing is usually bad, but this is this is a whole other level. My goodness, it sounds like the coaches did a better job of fighting than the boxers. <laughs> I feel bad for the man because I was like, he was just trying to ref him and he just suddenly gets mobbed. Right? It's pretty incredible just that, and this is before Roy Jones Jr. too. So then what happened, Annalie? When security guard participated in the attack on Walker and tried to Taekwondo kick Walker's head as Walker tried to make his way out of the boxing ring. And unfortunately, Walker couldn't make it out of the ring without being rescued by what Sports Illustrated described as slow-moving police officers. We'll get there. It's just going to take a second. <laughs> and Taekwondo was only a demonstration sport, so that was not allowed. <laughs> as Walker was being escorted by police out of the ring, Wallace Matthews, one of the NBC boxing commentators, tried to get him on the air to comment about the incident and Walker said no I'm going back to New Zealand and he did he got his luggage and went straight to the airport only problem was that he didn't have enough cash and his credit card was declined so one of the people who brought him to the airport paid for his ticket so on top of the mobbing incident he couldn't even get out of the country to go home (laughs) and you know he had a lot I bet even back then they had tons of Olympic swag to bring back to the airport with them well, I wonder if he would even bring it. That's, I mean, even for boxing, and we've told a lot of boxing stories over the years, but that is that is a whole other level of unhinged cray-cray. I wonder if, if he was still injured, did he just go, because I, I didn't find any information on this, but I wonder, like, if he was still injured, did he just immediately just go home, or did he just go to a hospital? Because I have no idea what happened. Did he just show up at the airport with blood gushing from his head? <laughs> no, because you said he his ear was severely injured. Yeah, he got kicked in the head, and well, and I well, and I would think wouldn't one of the airport officials be like, hey, you know, don't you need to get that checked or something? Because <laughs> I mean, if he's just bleeding everywhere, wouldn't someone just be like, hmm, that's going? <laughs> I don't think we want that on our flight home. <laughs> Wow, but man, that is, I mean, anytime you go after any kind of referee or official, that's problematic, but that's really frightening that he was so badly injured and nobody was protecting him. Well, I what I thought was funny is the other refs were the ones who were standing in and, I mean, the police eventually came, but you would think, you know, once they called, they'd be, I don't know, rush, rushing down there immediately. For how severe the injuries were. Refs got to take care of their own, man. (laughs) So then, but this is not it, is there? No. (laughs) And then it got worse. Pat 
Putnam from the Sports Illustrated reported Korean team trainer Lee Hong-soo said, when the referee was asked why he called so many fouls on O, he said, shut up, we'll get the Korean again next time. This is the same referee. And the problem was this was not the same referee. Another security guard took and shredded the score sheets from a man named Emil Zekov, who was president of the referee committee of the International Amateur Boxing Association, at the AIBA, and happened to be a Bulgarian. One Korean official even went so far as to use a ping pong ball container that was used for selecting officials at random for each match and tried to hit Zekov on the head with it. But American boxing judge Stan Hamilton protected Zekov and in doing so received a severely cut hand. One Korean official went into the ring and waved his arms, supposedly trying to get spectators to join the attack. Supports Illustrated said Korean fans were sad about the South Korean official's display of violence. One Korean spectator who was crying as he watched Keith Walker being attacked by the South Korean official said, I feel dirty. After the fight, Byung Jin Il made his own protest at the score by sitting inside the ring for a whopping 67 minutes. Byung originally sat on the floor in front of the NBC cameras, but moved to a chair that had been put in the corner of the ring. The last two fights of the night were postponed due to him sitting in the ring, and he refused to get up. He stayed for so long that the officials turned off the lights and left him to sit in the dark alone. That's it. We've had enough of this. You're going to sit there in the naughty <laughs> corner until you think about what you did. That's kind of what <laughs> Wow. It turns out that no arrests of any individuals were made, even though Central Police Headquarters ordered police subordinates to identify and arrest the people responsible for the attack on Walker. Six Koreans, including Byun and Lee, were suspended by the ABA. I will he do, may be I still in do. hiding he from the be. South Korean <laughs> officials. God, they went after the Silver Ferns, man, and that is not okay. If I do find any more um, information on what happened after the incident with Keith Walker, I will try to update you guys on the, on the situation. Welcome to Shukflistan. Now is the time of the show where we check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. These are past guests to the show and listeners who make up our citizenship of Shukflistan, our very own country. We're getting in that summer slow news time. I would think we'd have more results, and yet we don't. So I, I wonder if that's there's people on hold waiting for more championships to come down the pike in August and September. But we do have some news from Montreal, Montreal 76, the little Olympic city that could. Because they really are. The big O, the stadium, needs a new roof. And CTV reports that engineers have found there are major structural changes that have to happen first, namely the replacement of a 450-meter concrete ring along the roof line of the stadium. So the roof replacement's been put on hold, and the Olympic Park Development and Upkeep Society is working with a construction company to solve the problem and rework the budget. It's expected to be expensive. And Montreal just paid off their I know. I know. I feel like they can never get this roof right either. That's the other thing. They keep messing with the roof and because obviously you stadium in Montreal needs a roof over it because of the winters. But oh man, hopefully that will be something that's doable. And Andrew Marinus is launching a new nonfiction chapter book series called Beyond the Games, which is about athletes who have stepped up beyond sports to make a difference in the world. It will be illustrated by Deandra Hodge, and the series will be available starting March 5th, 2024. 
we've got some news from Paris 2024. There was a ticket drop. As we had like stages of ticket sales for the beginning of the year, now it seems like the ticket platform is just going to be open and you can see what's there at any given time. There will be ticket drops occasionally. Does not sound like they will be announced. So you just kind of have to keep looking for it. I know in the past there have been bots that different super fans have created to scrape the ATRs, the authorized ticket resellers from games past to find out when there are ticket drops. I don't know if they have been working on that now or if it's possible to do so, but it just check it from time to time. If you're still looking for tickets, there's still 30 tickets per account maximum. We do have some information on the cardboard beds. And we talked about this last week. Annalie did some research for us, finding out what happened after Tokyo. A website called dzine.com said many of the beds went to national organizations for reuse. Some were recycled into paper products and some mattress parts were recycled into new plastic items. So they did have some new life and some recycled life. Sounds like the ones from Paris might just be being recycled, but we will keep our ears to the ground on what's going to happen with those. They may be recycled into books. Perhaps to be sold along the Seine. Oh, no. <laughs> have you seen this controversy? I have, and I see the controversy. Like, I see why this is a problem. Booksellers along the Seine, which is a big deal. There are about 900 bookstalls lined up along the river, and that is a touch point in the city. And... Timeout reports, along with many other outlets, but Timeout says about 570 of them are being asked to move temporarily to a bookseller's village in the Bastille during the games because the stalls are obstructing the river view. Surprisingly, or not surprisingly, the booksellers are refusing to do so. And they say, like, look, some of these stalls are 100 years old and they're going to fall apart if you move them. And again... We had this idea to have an opening ceremony along the Seine and did not think about the details of what's going to happen around and what's going to make that happen. And also, let's not lose the irony of their being asked to move to the Bastille. <laughs> Isn't there a little holiday in France, Bastille Day, where we rushed and freed all the political prisoners from the prison? But more importantly, with all these stalls, I'm sure there's a concern about security. There's a concern about crowd control. Once again, great idea, not totally thought through. Right. And I'm guessing they also thought it will be easy to just, we'll just move the booksellers. That's fine. And not realizing that the booksellers are French and that they would be argumentative about it. <laughs> we are not moving our books. We are uh, staying right here. <laughs> Nielsen Company Grace Note has released its first virtual metal table forecast for those of you who are interested in what the predictions are for which countries will do well at the games. Grace Note has been doing this for many editions of the games, but for this one, they analyzed results from the big competitions since Tokyo 2020. They predicted gold, silver, and bronze medal counts for participating countries and athletes. They did not include Russia and Belarus in these calculations. So in their predictions, they have USA on top winning 128 medals compared to 113 at Tokyo. 
China would be second with 68 medals compared to 89 for Tokyo. And France, host nation bump, would be third with 63 medals, and they only got 33 in Tokyo. I'm shocked at the China drop, that they're saying China is going to win significantly fewer medals this time around because they just seem to be getting, as as an Olympic team, stronger and stronger and stronger in many more sports. Right? I don't know, but we've got these down so we can compare them. Rounding out the top 10 would be Great Britain at four, then Japan, Italy, Australia, which really surprised me, especially with the World Swimming Championship results. They Australia's been absolutely cleaning up in the pool and beating a lot of American favorites. So, yeah, this shocks me. Mm-hmm. They're with the Netherlands? Come on. Yeah, just ahead of the Netherlands, then Germany, then South Korea. And then for most gold medals by a country, Grace Note is predicting the U.S. will have 43, France will have 32, and China will have 26. I'm calling BS on these. I do not like these. Uh, You know, I have a feeling we said that last time. Maybe not for Tokyo, but I think for Pyeongchang, we had some issues too. So this is always, I love these things because it's always fun to see what they got wrong. They're trying to goose these numbers so that more Americans will watch the Olympics, because you know Americans only watch if Americans win. Oh, right, right. We shall see. And we will have a link to the full predictions in the show notes so you can take a look for yourself. And Omega has released its Paris 2024 limited edition watch. Did you check this out? My birthday's coming up. <laughs> Talk to your husband. <laughs> the watch is the Seamaster Diver 300 meter Paris 2024 edition. It's got a gold bezel and a white ceramic face. And then the second hand has a flame on it. So you will always have the fire going around the watch face. The reverse side will have the Paris 2024 logo. And there will be a possibility to add a Paris 2024 themed strap to it. Cost $10,100 or 9,200 euros. So if I had seen this ahead of time, I would have included it in it in our newsletter. So in our newsletter this week, I did a story about what if you had endless amounts of money to spend on the Olympics. So clearly this would have been the souvenir that you would have bought. Exactly. Well, you know, there are follow-ups. Check. You'll have to subscribe to our newsletter to uh, find out if this makes it and see what it looks like. And then we had a nice note from listener Kurt. I just wanted to include that, who said last week, we are one year away from the Paris Olympics. We can make it. It's not that hard. It's only 52 weeks away, but we will make it. And then when July 26 comes again in 2024, the world will come together in the city of Paris, France. I call that hope. I wish it was a haiku. <laughs> it was very sweet of Kurt to send this in to us. And I, when I first started reading it, I started counting syllables. <laughs> I'm like, did we get a haiku? <laughs> So please, flamealipod at gmail.com, send me your haikus. That would be good for the newsletter. I will say that. I'll do a whole haiku compilation, which would have been better for Tokyo. True. But yeah, if there was a French form of poetry, a French construction. Oh, there has to be. I've really never studied true French, but I'll find out. I'm going to look that up. This is like when somebody proposes at your wedding. Oh, I was. 
that's the best analogy. The timing of some LA 2028 news could not have been worse because on the one year to go to Paris 2024 day, they decided to launch a custom Ralph Lauren LA 2028 logo and apparel to go with it. Like you couldn't wait till the day after Paris, like let Paris have all of the excitement for its anniversary. And the item is totally a knockoff of the Team Canada's denim jacket that they wore for Tokyo. Oh, jeez. This was just stolen all the way around. This was really disappointing to me. And disappointing in the sense of share the love. Like, why are you trying to take away? And I don't know why it made me so angry because it's just a little product announcement. But let Paris have its moment. Right. It made me feel like, oh, the U.S. is being American again. And this is why the Olympics don't like the U.S. In a way, you know, we talk about that. And of course, if we said, well, do you like the U.S.? They would go, no, no. But they would also say the U.S. is the U.S. Much in the way you say, like, that jerk is a jerk. And we can't seem to get over ourselves and step aside for other people. Just one day. You could have waited one day, two days. you're not going to sell that many Ralph Lauren jackets and on the day to go, right? Are you? That makes it worthwhile to step all over Paris's toes? Because Paris is so good and the French are so good about sharing things. Well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say what France is, but I we're do know that... We're being cranky. Stop. <laughs> so we're officially at five years to go to LA 2028. It's plenty of time to make your announcements. Prosecco is the official sparkling wine of Milan Cortina 2026. And I am not cranky about that. Oh, buckle up for some shows, friends. I wonder if that means like, what does the official, like, is it only going to be in the lounges? Do you think they'll, they are not going to put any in the media rooms? No. Because they know better to give it to the reporters. But maybe we'll get like a little bottle in our hotel room. Well, that would be lovely if that happened. But I wouldn't be surprised if there's a bar in the media dining hall. There was a bar in the dining hall at Beijing 2022. It was pretty much closed the whole time you were there. I will say that. But that's where we had a robot bartender. And people went there and they would drink in the evenings. So maybe there will be Prosecco at the media dining hall bar. Now, I have said in relation to Paris, I am not a fan of wine. And this is true. But when you put bubbles in it and you make it Italian, that is a whole different thing. So you're not looking forward to the possibility of Moet champagne? I don't really like champagne, but Prosecco is different. And I love it. Again, look forward to some exciting coverage from Milan Cortina 2026. (laughs) Also, the Paralympic program has been confirmed. There will be 79 medal events across six sports, which means there's one new medal event, and that is wheelchair curling mixed doubles. So good news for our Shukvastani Steve Empt if he is sticking around for 2026. Possibility for another medal. That means we are getting closer to parity. We are not quite there yet in the Paralympic side. There will be 39 medal events for men, 35 for women, and five mixed events. Para-alpine skiing, para-biathlon, para-cross-country will have gender parity in terms of the number of medal events. But I think the one of the big areas where we're just not going to have parity is because sled hockey is predominantly men. 
there will be 20% more athletes quota places than Beijing, which is exciting. There are 665 athlete quota places. 323 of the, those are for men. 176 are women. And 166 are gender free. You know what that means? That means that there are spaces in sled hockey and wheelchair curling where mm-hmm. it could be either male or female, where it's not right. guaranteed as a female place. Like you have to have one person that's female on the wheelchair curling, but then there are spots where it could be either. Gotcha. We do have some World Games news. The official sports program has been announced for Chengdu 2025. They will have 35 sports on the program. New sports will include electrically powered power boating, cheerleading, which will be the double palm routine if you are a cheerleading fan, para free diving, para jujitsu, and para dance sport. There will be new disciplines participating for the first time in the World Games that will include the power lifting classic, roller sports freestyle, kickboxing, point fighting, beach corfball, and underwater sports free diving. Sports that are returning from Birmingham, we have wheelchair rugby, flag football, and duathlon. Dragon Boat will be on the program again, last seen in 2009. Cable Wakeboard was last on in 2005. Also, Wushu Sanda is on the program. It was invitational in 2013 and now is a full sport. The World Games organization was clear to state, or they clearly stated that pair of sports are not a separate event. They are integrated into the program, just like other sports. And the number of participants is increasing. This will be athletes and technical officials from 4,200 to 5,000. So we're getting to have a bigger and bigger world games. It'll be interesting to see what happens. I'm getting excited. There is so much happening over the next two years. (laughs) We say this every year, and yet somehow it just keeps getting bigger and more And overwhelming, but in the best way. Exactly. Exactly. I think we have viewing to catch up on to prepare. Would you like a Prosecco with that? I would love a Prosecco with that. Pop it open. All right. That's going to do it for this week. Let us know what you think of wheelchair fencing. You can connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at FlameAlivePod. Email us at FlameAlivePod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. Be sure to join the Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. And don't forget to get our weekly newsletter filled with other fun stories about this week's episode. You can sign up for that at flamealivepod.com. We would like to give a special thank you to our intern, Annalie Dable. Thank you for your research help this week and for your great story. And we'd also like to thank our patrons who keep our flame alive. We've got some great interviews lined up for the next few weeks. So get excited about hearing some sports we haven't talked about yet. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, keep the flame alive. <laughs>